we believe that the Bible teaches that there are two offices within the church, the office of elders, the office of deacons. Now, while most churches have either elders or deacons, we believe that the New Testament is clear and that it should be led by both elders and deacons rather than either elders or deacons. So whereas the office of elder is often ignored in the modern church, the office of deacon is often misunderstood. Uh, The title deacon implies a service-oriented ministry. It seems best to view deacons as servants who do whatever is necessary to allow the elders to accomplish their God-given calling of shepherding, leading, and teaching the church. I am so incredibly thankful that this church has taken the time in the effort to rightly clarify the role of deacons within the church. And in fact, uh, back when I very first began engaging in conversations with this church, would have been back in January of 2018, as the pastor search committee sent me uh, some documents related to this church, the one document that stood out to me as the strongest and gave me the most comfort and clarity as to pursue serving among you guys was the deacon covenant that the church has in place. As I read through that deacon covenant, I had such great peace and understanding that, yes, a church that gets it, a church that understands. And we are incredibly blessed to have some amazing deacons servant-minded men of this church. In fact, I think it would be appropriate for our deacons, if you're here this morning, just stand where where you are. Come on, deacons, stand. Come on. Thank you. Thank you. I'm also equally thankful that this church understands and now embraces the role of elders. The responsibility of an elder is incredible. Listen, as I read through uh, some of the responsibilities of an elder and understand that this isn't an inclusive list at all, there's other areas that um, could be added to this. The elder helps to determine the overall vision and the future direction of the church examining prospective members and candidates for baptism, overseeing church discipline, refuting false doctrine, and exhorting sound doctrine, overseeing discipleship, administering the ordinances of the gospel, equipping and training members of the church for the work of ministry, teaching the whole counsel of the word of God, overseeing, coordinating, promoting ministries of the church, mobilizing the church for local missions and world missions. So based on on the New Testament, the role of deacon and the role of elder are of equal value. They're both necessary and needed. So this church needs our deacons to provide the logistical or material support 
so that our elders can focus on proclaiming the word of God, on praying, and on teaching his children. And so it is with great joy and great anticipation for me as elder among elders to, to, to be able to share that burden, that responsibility with these two men. Two men that I've been involved with and since, I mean, they, they served on the pastor search committee that brought me here. So if you have an issue, you can take it up with them. I love these guys. I'm incredibly thankful for them. And we are uniquely blessed by the fact that God has given us these men to serve this church in this capacity. And so I want to give them an opportunity uh, to speak to you this morning. And so, J.E.L., turn over to you first. Thank you, David. Um, and speaking on behalf of the search team, I shared this before. Uh, it was definitely God that worked with our search team because I've served on several search teams in other churches and never have we been led to a man of God as quick as we did. I don't know if it's all of us were just ready to get somebody. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, God definitely led us to David uh, and so blessed to have him here. I wanted to just basically kind of share my Christian story. Uh, we have a lot of new members and, and a lot of people really don't, they just know I coached and I was in education and that's about it. But uh, when David asked us to share, I felt like I just needed to kind of give you my story and where I come from so you would know my background. I was born and raised in a tremendously strong Christian home, raised on a farm most of my life, uh, had a strong Christian mother that prayed for us every day. And I was the youngest of five boys. Uh, I guess the only drawback was that all five of us really had a drug background. We were drugged to church every time the doors were open. Uh, Mom and dad saw to that. Uh, my dad was a very quiet man, but he also uh, was a deacon. In 1957, at the age of 10, I went forward in a small West Texas uh, country church, uh, Tokyo, Texas. And uh, if you don't know where it's at, you won't find it because it's a ghost town now. But we had a revival, and I was caught up in one of those times when a, a lot of kids went forward at the altar call. But you know what? That's about all that I can remember at that time. You know, then grew up. I married in 1968 to a beautiful woman, Lynn, who God just seems to shine through every day. She has truly been a a stronghold and a prayer warrior uh, and supported me every time I moved her when I was coaching. Uh, but she really was a stronghold during my coaching years, raising our three children, uh, a lot of times having to deal with them at two and three nights uh, a week when I was gone coaching. In 1970, I got my first coaching job in Big Springs, Texas, at a junior high that I actually worked at when I was there in junior college. Lynn and I attended a James Robinson crusade uh, one night in the fall. 
that was at the stadium there. And I'm sure that many of you remember James Robinson did a lot of crusades back in those years. That, that night made a big, huge difference on Lynn, and it made a big difference in our marriage. Then in 1971, while I was still coaching at Big Springs, I received a call from my former high school coach in Denver City, where Lynn and I both went to school. I had not even contacted him, and he asked me if I wanted to come to Denver City to coach. And that truly was a God thing. I had not even applied there. But God chose to move us to Denver City because Lynn's dad, at that time, was suffering from a major kidney disease and eventually had to go through a lot of surgery. So it allowed us some time to be there. It allowed her time to be with her dad before he passed away. Then in 1973, with only three years coaching experience, I was offered the head basketball job at Kermit, a 4A high school. And folks, I don't know if you know anything about much in the coaching, but that doesn't happen very often. That was truly a God thing. He put me there for several reasons. One, I didn't realize at that time. But one was he wanted me to become involved with FCA, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And I even tried to turn that down. I rejected it at first. I told the coach that was talking to me about it. I said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. But you know what? God began to work on me. And the Fellowship of Christian Athletes has been an integral part of my coaching career. In Kermit, where we were at, we became very active in the church. I was even teaching a junior high boys class on Sunday morning, helping with RAs on Sunday night. Many of you remember RAs from years ago. And then on Wednesday nights, I met with the, all of the athletes that wanted to come uh, with Fellowship of Christian Athletes. So I was doing my part. But in the summer of 1978, on July 23rd, a really strange and powerful thing happened to me. I was getting ready to go off to coaching school. Lynn was at home with our two youngest children. Uh, our daughter had just been born in February. And Phil, our oldest son, who was eight at the time, wanted to go with me. We had another James Robinson crusade at our stadium there in Kermit. And so I took him with me. And all during the service, Phil paid so much attention and at the altar call, he looked up and he said, Dad, I want to go down and be saved. And I looked at him, I said, Son, are you sure? I said, Why don't we talk about this? And he looked away and then he said, No, Dad, I want to go now. Well, the reason I wanted to resist, because God was working on me. So, when all, so during that altar call, I'll never forget, we were about halfway up in the stands. He and I walked down. We walked onto the track, and guess who we would see? It was our pastor, J.R. Manning. And J.R. come walking up with a big grin on his face because he knew probably was Phil. And 
Phil looked at him and he said, Brother J.R., I want to get saved. And I'll never forget the shock on J.R.'s face. When he looked at me grinning, I said, yeah, me too. Folks, I had played the Christian game for 20 years. I truly didn't know what it was to accept Christ as my personal Savior at the age of 10 because it, it really didn't mean anything when I went down. And that's not saying that you can't truly be saved at a young age, but it just didn't happen to me. And being a, being a coach, I shared with our Fellowship of Christian Athletes when we met, I said, well, guys, the score right now is Satan 30, God 0. I just hope he'll give me a chance to get that score on the positive side. He really began to work in me and mold me. And in 1985, there in Kermit, God called me to be a deacon of the church and continued to lead and work in that church. After 13 years in Kermit, God actually led us away to Ingleside for another head basketball position. We were there four years. There I was able to start the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. They didn't have it at that time. I really wondered at some Sometimes why God had put me there because there were a lot of political things within the athletic department there. In four years, I went through five athletic directors. So that tells you there's, there were situations. But it was because he wanted me to work with Fellowship of Christian Athletes. To this day... I still hear from some of the people, some of the kids that were in that FCA group and especially one young lady that's coaching in Harper and she told me, she said, Coach, it changed my life. And you know what? That was all worth it. After four years in Kermit, I mean in Ingleside, we moved to Palacios. Again, it was a God thing. I received a call asking me to come and interview there and ended up my coaching career there, uh, a very successful coaching career. When I went there, we were 3 and 20. I started Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and it just seemed like God continued to bless, gave me a chance to, to actually minister and witness to a young man on my basketball team that was involved in a lot of gang stuff, tremendous athlete, probably the best athlete I've ever coached, got shot in the back before his junior year. Missed his heart by that much. And I was able to witness to him in the ICU. Never did really tell me that he accepted God, but his life did change and turn around some. After finishing my coaching career there, God had another plan for me is he opened the door and put me in an elementary principal's position. Now that also is a God thing because I had no elementary experience. The superintendent had a lot of trust in me uh, and gave me that opportunity. And it was a great time. I was there eight years. And during that time, I was surrounded by a 
small group of Christian women that every Wednesday morning they would meet in a classroom. They asked me, can we, can we meet in a classroom and pray? I said, you bet. I said, I wish I could join you, but I had duties kind of corralling around the, the campus. And they prayed for me every Wednesday. And I could feel their prayers. And Lord knows I needed it because I had a staff of 55 women and two men, and I was one of the men. But it was a great time and truly a time that I loved. And it gave me an opportunity again to try to influence young children because I had over 400 kids on that campus. After 33 years in education, I retired in 2004. And then I began to work insurance part-time with a great Christian man there in that area. Then in June of 2008, we moved to Kingsland. And the reason we moved to Kingsland is because my mother, who was aging at the time, mother and dad moved here to Kingsland in 78, but we bought property here in 64, so I've been coming to Kingsland for years. And us being able to move here and get the property where we're at, that's, that's another story that was a God thing. But my mom was one of the great prayer warriors of this church. Many times during the week, she and several other ladies would be sitting in this very congregation praying for the staff, for the church. She was a prayer warrior. And that's probably why I'm where I am today because my mom prayed for me a lot. But after we joined, the week after we moved, we immediately got involved with faith families as soon as school started, which has truly been a blessing. Another opportunity to try to influence young lives. Then in 2013, several months after my mom had passed away, I received another phone call, another God thing. The superintendent at a charter school where my two grandsons went to school called me and he said, would you like to come and coach our boys' basketball team? Our boys' basketball coach just quit and went into the oil field two weeks before the season started. And I went, oh, Lord, <laughs> what are you asking? I said, I told him, I said, I need to pray about it. Lynn and I prayed about it and thought, what a blessing, what an opportunity to be able to coach two of my grandsons. I'd already had the great opportunity of coaching my two sons. Such great memories. But then to have that opportunity with two grandsons, it's beyond measure. So I accepted it. Moved there in November, lived with my son for a while till I found a, a huge motor home that a church member allowed me to live in. Lynn stayed here, looked after the place, but on Fridays she would load up much like she used to back in the old coaching days, and here she'd come to San Angelo. She was there to watch me and support me in my last coaching session. I've had people ask me, you're going to coach again? And I said, never. But I guess with God, you can't ever say never. 
You really can't say that. God truly allowed me to experience 26 wonderful years of coaching. Very successful coaching in my eyes. 23 of it as a head basketball coach. I was able to win a lot of district championships, go in the playoffs many times. But you know what? That really wasn't what God wanted me to do. God wanted me to try to mold young men and young ladies' lives. And I know I didn't do the best job, but I tried to. And Fellowship of Christian Athletes rewarded me so much in seeing, being able to see several young people come to know Christ. Lynn and I have been blessed with three great children who have Christian spouses and all serve the Lord in one capacity or the other. Our two sons are both ministers. And that wasn't my doing. That's probably Lynn's doing, praying for them, and God's doing, and their grandmother, which they loved. Phil, our oldest, is a pastor at Paul Ann Baptist Church in San Angelo. Carrie is also a minister at First Baptist Bryan. Now to take a breath. As many of you know, we had a daughter. And we lost her last February the 9th. Suddenly at the young age of almost 42. She also served God. She was a lead singer in the First Baptist Church in Dilly. She was a beautiful, strong, Christian young lady. She gave her testimony at a heart conference in Pearsall eight days before she passed away. Her testimony is on YouTube and has touched thousands of lives. We're truly blessed. I'm blessed to be able to see it. Lynn was actually there at the conference. Losing her was the hardest thing our family has ever had to do. I lost two brothers a year, two years ago, and Lynn lost a brother, and we lost all of them within three weeks of each other, but none of that compares to losing her daughter. But we have comfort. God's comforted us because we know that she is in heaven, and she's not in pain. She doesn't have a heart condition anymore. She just has a glorious heart. But First Baptist Kingsland, I want to take this time to say thank you because you as our church have supported us and prayed for us during this very tough time. So thank you from the bottom of our heart. We also have five beautiful grandchildren whom all know and serve the Lord. We are so blessed. And then we're soon going to add three more to our family because our three, three of our grandsons are getting married this summer all eight weeks apart. But they're marrying three beautiful, strong Christian girls. What a blessing it is to know God has truly worked in their lives. 
Uh, we, Lynn and I have been blessed beyond measure. People have asked us, how did y'all do it? We didn't. God did it. God blessed us, and God gets the credit. You know, we serve a very merciful God, a God of second chances. And I'm so glad that he allowed me a second chance to truly get to know him in a personal way. Not just say that, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I thank God for all the wonderful blessings and opportunities that he's provided me and my family. He has truly guided me every step of the way. He's put me in places that I didn't know I needed to be there, but yet he showed me what I needed to do when I got there. Even when I tried to resist and say, I don't want to go or I don't want to do that, God made me go. So being an old coach, I can now say that the score is God 43, Satan 30. He's not winning anymore. But you know what? The game is still going on. So I still have time to make that score even better. I'm very humbled that you as a church body have nominated me to serve as a possible elder. It's an awesome responsibility, as you heard David say. And if you as a church body choose to have me as an elder serve you, Lynn and I promise to do our very best. And with your help and your prayers, we'll faithfully try to serve you. I look forward to the possibility of working closely with Pastor David and our wonderful staff. We have such a great staff. So thank you again for loving our family and for being such a caring and loving church. Thank you. I want to say what an honor it is to sit on the same stage as this couple. They are my brothers and sisters, and they are my mentors. And uh, this week, I tried to decide what it was that God would have me say, and early in the week, I was quite firm on what I would say today. And then yesterday came. And for some reason or other, God started changing the direction of what I would speak to you about today. I laughed and told Pam that, you know, as I age, it begins to be more difficult to lay out what God has done at 58 years of age versus what it might have been at 20. So I decided that there was a theme in my life that I wanted to speak to you about and the importance of that theme and how it relates to where we find ourselves today 
We live in strange times. One of the greatest blessings of my life was being born to a Christian Bible-believing parents. I was exposed to preaching and teaching of God's Word since nine months before I came into this world. My parents were in church while I was in my mom. That exposure has been constant throughout my life. To my parents, to the pastors, to the teachers who fed me that word, it was unquestionably the standard for right and wrong, the guide for how to live your life. It was God-breathed. It was how God explained His relationship to us and His plan for us. That word convicted me of my sinful state and brought me to a point of repentance in vacation Bible school and the opening assembly at First Baptist Church, Gatesville, Texas in the summer of my fourth grade year. I accepted that forgiveness. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. He's the way, the truth, and the life. My mother, another praying woman, and by the way, I will testify to this, Jay's mom made the best green beans I've ever eaten in my life. (laughs) And they were picked out of her garden. (laughs) But my mother prayed for a woman that possessed godly qualities and believed in the Word of God. Her prayers were answered. It has guided mine and Pam's marriage for almost 29 years. We've relied on it to raise our children and now our grandchildren. It has sustained us through good times and bad times. But we live in a culture that has come to see God's word as irrelevant. And that culture lives like there is no God. We even see some within the church who want to alter God's word to fit the culture. The current chaos and the confusion, that's a direct result of the rejection of God's word and therefore his authority. Some of the symptoms, the abuse in every form that our culture hands out to one another. I work in the field of children being removed from homes. I see the devastation that are in those homes. The destruction of marriages and families. The addictions that destroy people's lives. This passage from 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 9 expresses some of what I feel today. Perhaps you can relate to it. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. (laughs) Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. It's 
bewildering to see how quickly it seems that the coin has flipped. We are in the minority. We live in a post-Christian nation. Do you feel hard-pressed? I chose that NIV passage because it says hard-pressed. And that hard-pressed is like a grape that's being stomped. (laughs) Are you perplexed? Does it blow your mind that people are saying that what's right is wrong and what's wrong is right? And if you do, by the way, decide to disagree with that, you will be persecuted. And I see over the horizon where it looks like we might be struck down. So how do we deal with this culture that is opposed to God's Word? Well, I know this. The Word is always relevant in the current times. I don't care if it's 200 A.D., 200 B.C., or 2021. Let's look at Jesus' times. In Jesus' times, when he lived, the Roman government was openly hostile to the people of God. Sound familiar? The priesthood was corrupt and self-serving. Much of the culture had been heavily influenced by the Greek emphasis on the flesh. The pursuit of physical pleasures, beauty, and wealth. Sound familiar? Well, in Jesus' day, there were four groups of people that sought solutions. And God's Word corrected all four of them. We today can be tempted to try to deal with our dilemma in the wrong way. So let's look at what the wrong way was. The first group, and does somebody have uh, Kleenex? My nose is up here running off my face. So. The Essenes. The Essenes were a group of people that lived in that day and time who had removed themselves from Jerusalem because of the corruption of the priesthood. They no longer could tolerate what they saw happening, so in an effort, a, a rightly motivated effort, they removed themselves to the desert near the Dead Sea, set up a group, a community, and focused on learning God's Word, inscribing God's Word, and focusing on that. Has anybody in here ever thought about buying some acreage in far west Texas? Building a house, isolating your children and your grandchildren from this sick world? So that we don't have to live among the filth? We've talked about it more than once. (laughs) But I will say this. That's not what God's word tells us to do. He says be in it, but not of it. He says be salt and light. You cannot be salt and light 
if you're living on the edge of the Dead Sea where no one comes in contact with you. It says, go out into all the world, not hide from it. The Pharisees, you know them, dedicated to the word, know it inside, outside, backwards and forwards. But Jesus criticized some of those folks and he said, do what they teach you, but don't do what they do. We need to be careful that what we teach is what we carry out. And we have to carry it out here, not in the desert. The zealots. The zealots believed that violence is necessary to bring about God's kingdom. And it was their duty to throw off the chains of the Roman rule by any means possible. I hear rumblings of that. I hear some people who think that's the way to go. But Jesus taught, love your enemies. The zealots, in fact, thought no reason to pay taxes to an ungodly government. Jesus said, render unto Caesar what's Caesar, and to God what is God's. What's God's? You. <laughs> you belong to Him. The fourth group that did it incorrectly were the Herodians and the Sadducees. Herodians is a fancy word. It means people who supported the Herods that were in power in their nation, and they did that, they cooperated with Rome so they can maintain their status, and they were willing to compromise God's law. I see that today. Jesus was not willing to compromise God's law to keep earthly peace. So how are we going to deal with this confused Chaotic culture. First of all, we meet the culture where they're found. Jesus' ministry was not done in the synagogue. <laughs> he went to the temple, he went to the synagogue, but much of his ministry was done out there. And that's where we will make an, have an effect not meeting here, I mean, it's good to meet here, it's good to study God's Word, it's good to become equipped, but what are you becoming equipped for if we don't take it outside the four walls of this building? If we don't live it, we combat lies with truth, foolishness with wisdom, and darkness with light. And we do that with the love, the compassion, and the dedication that Jesus exhibited. Jay, you mentioned earlier that we are truly blessed in the staff that we have. And I will tell you that the goal of this pastor search committee was to find a guy that preached God's word unflinchingly, just as it was written, and if it made us uncomfortable, so be it. <laughs> we have staff 
that their heart is to apply the Word of God to the households of the people of this community and into the lives of those households so that they can be healed. We have staff whose heart it is to disciple, to truly make disciples. That's an action word. It means focus and purpose. We have staff who wants to lead us in praising God in song, in biblical, biblically sound music. I, like Jay, am humbled that you would even consider allowing me to serve you as a possible elder. But I'll tell you this, that if you allow me to, it will be the Word and the Word and the Word and nothing but the Word. No matter how hard that would be to carry it out, that's how we wish to lead you. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. What a great joy, challenge it is to to have heard these words from J.E. and from Bobby. And Father, pray your blessings be upon them, for Lynn and Pam, their families, Father. Guide us now. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, church, before you're seated, I'm giving you a promise. I am going to be ever so brief in this message I want you to hear today. We're in Romans chapter 1. Don't be seated yet. Verses 16 and 17. The phrase that we're zeroing in on this morning is, I am not ashamed. Be seated. Grab those Bibles. I promise you it's not a trick from your pastor that I'm going to give you the longest message ever. I'm going to give you, I think, perhaps the shortest message I've ever created, but I'm so anxious to share this with you. So I want you to hear these words because in these two verses, they contain one of the greatest summaries of the gospel that was ever written. It is a clear declaration of God's power to save all who believe, no matter who they are or where they're from. The text says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now this is the fourth time that Paul has used the word of the gospel in this introduction. Go back to verse number one, you see it there, set apart for the gospel of God. Again in verse number nine, he says, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel. Last week we saw it in verse number 15, where it says, so for my part I am eager to preach the gospel. And now in verse number 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'd like to share with you 
as we unpack these two verses, not just today, but uh, next week as well, I, I want to share with you three reasons why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. This morning, I'm just going to give you one, okay? We'll give you the first reason. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is God's good news that comes from himself. It's the good news that comes from God. And so the gospel is the news that God has given to this world, and it is what he expects to be proclaimed throughout this world. Back in verse number one, as we spent those many weeks camped out in verse number one, we see that it says that Paul, really a slave of Christ Jesus, a called apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Which means this is the gospel, the good news that God has given to us. It's not something that was created by Paul or somebody else. This is directly from our Heavenly Father. And so when you think about that, the question becomes, well, why would Paul even be ashamed of the gospel? Can you think of any reason why Paul might potentially be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, for me, if I'm being honest, I can think of a lot of potential reasons why he might be ashamed. For one thing, the gospel was associated with a poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified. Think about that. The Romans had no special appreciation, love, or admiration for the Jewish people. In fact, the crucifixion was the lowest form of execution that was given to a criminal. So, so why put your faith in a Jew who was crucified? That is a potential source of why he might feel a little bit of shame in, in, in bearing this message so loudly and clearly in a world that openly rejects the source of the message. Rome was a proud city. The gospel came from Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was the capital city of one of the, the little nations that Rome had conquered. And so what do we know about Rome? We know that Rome was the moral sewer. It was the cesspool of wickedness. Moral depravity ran rampant. And so the society stood absolutely opposed to the moral righteousness of the gospel. And then begin, just think about Paul himself. Paul was often rejected, not just by individuals, but by sometimes rejected by entire communities. In Acts chapter 16, uh, the authorities imprisoned him in Philippi. He was rejected by even more than just that. Religionists ran him out of Thessalonica. They threatened his life in Berea. The intellectuals laughed him out of Athens. That's all in Acts chapter 17. You read in his letter to the church in Corinth and in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 23, we see that his message was considered foolishness to the intellectuals or the Greeks. And it was a stumbling block to his own people. The Jewish people. So to think of a, of a little Jewish tent maker going to Rome to proudly and boldly proclaim the message of the gospel could be a bit intimidating. 
somewhat humorous if you, if you really think about where the message is being, who's delivering the message, and the environment to which he is proclaiming that message. And yet, here Paul says he stands unashamed. Unashamed of the gospel. I think we would all agree that it is a serious sin to be ashamed of our Savior. And it is a serious sin to be ashamed of proclaiming the gospel throughout this world. But I think if we're honest, we would also know that there's great difficulty in avoiding that, sh- that shame that we sometimes feel which often prevents us from sharing the good news that we know our, our world is in desperate need of hearing. Why do we have that shame? Why do we hesitate so often in proclaiming the good news? When we have the opportunity to speak on behalf of Christ, then why is it that we are often so silent? I could think of a lot of reasons. To the carnal or unsaved individual, we know that the gospel is unattractive. It's intimidating. It repulses them. But not just them, it also repulses and, and is unattractive to the ungodly spiritual system that tends to dominate our world. And so we know that the gospel exposes sin and wickedness. We know that the gospel declares pride to be despicable, and a work-based righteousness to be absolutely worthless in the sight of God. And so to the sinful heart of unbelievers, the gospel really appears to them to be bad news rather than good news. Well, the truth is, before you can understand, appreciate, and receive the good news, the bad news needs to be revealed and proclaimed. And so, when we are the messengers of the good news, which is received as good news, then often people will react with contempt to the one that's presenting that message to them. They might react with contempt, or they might begin to throw out their arguments and their theories against it. For that reason, the fear of being ridiculed and mocked often it exists, and that fear often prevents us from doing what God's Word clearly tells us to do. Share the good news. There's other fears that exist that prevent us from speaking the truth of God's Word. The fear of rejection. The fear of being ignored. The fear of possibly losing friends or, or family members because we stand boldly on the Word of God. The fear of being abused or even the fear of giving our lives on, the, on behalf of the gospel. All of these fears provide a great barrier sometimes in our witnessing and proclaiming the truth. It has been said that if you take a, a piece of chalk, a, a white chalk, and, and you draw a circle on the floor around the goose it has been said that the goose will not leave that circle out of fear of crossing over that chalk line why do i share that well in a similar way the chalk marks of criticism 
ridicule, rejection prevent many of us from sharing the good news to those that are in desperate need of hearing the good news and responding to it. We have no need to be ashamed of the gospel. It's not our good news to declare to people. It is God's good news to His creation. He's just entrusted us with the message to deliver that to other people. And think about it. For those of you that are here, right, and you are a child of God, which means that you have put your faith and trust in His only begotten Son, right, you belong to Him. So therefore, you are recipients of His love, His grace, and His mercy. That should motivate us to take that message to those that are in desperate need of hearing it. So why would we be silent Look at our world. Look at the chaos in which we're living in. The moral depravity is rampant and it only appears to be getting worse. So those of us that know the cure to this spiritual disease, how much more is the burden placed on us to take that message, that cure, and give it to the world? We have no need to be ashamed. We don't have to apologize for declaring the truth of God's Word. We don't have to soften it in order to make it seem more appeasing to other people. The Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit's going to do. We have to do what God has called us to do, and that is to stand on His truth and proclaim it to the world. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 7-9, through 9, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. There it is. Again, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He saved us, and He's called us with a holy calling, which means if you belong to Him, you have a holy calling that has been placed upon your life. And what's that calling? That calling is to go and make disciples. That's all of our responsibility. Now, how we carry that out will look different from person to person because God has given us a, a unique spiritual gift to be used for His glory. So, so how do we get that? Well, it says here, according to His own purpose and grace. God in His grace decides uh, to whom He gives whatever particular spiritual gift to carry out for His purpose. And that purpose is to make His glory known, to declare the good news, to make disciples throughout this world. Oh, church, we have nothing to be ashamed about when it comes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No need to make apologies. No need to soften our words. Just, we need to boldly proclaim His truth and also reflect that truth in how we live our lives. 
the, the, the message in our lives needs to be consistent. It was uh, back in 1995, uh, January or February of, of that year, early part of 95, uh, I was in Saudi Arabia uh, doing a six-month rotation with the Army uh, there. And uh, shortly after Logan was born, KC was stateside, um, uh, taking care of Logan. We were stationed in Germany at that time. And so I went from Germany to Saudi Arabia uh, for that six-month time period. In that six months, I read lots and lots and lots of books. I think that God used that six-month time period to fortify within me that desire to get out of the military, to return back to school, and to pursue the ministry that God had called me to do. And so I, I, I was encouraged during that time. I received a letter uh, one day from uh, one of my brothers, and in that letter, he attached this thing that I'm about to share with you. I don't even know, honestly, if I were to ask my brother, does he remember sending that to me? I, I wonder if he even does. He, he probably doesn't. And that's not to say anything against my brother. It's probably just to say a lot of time has passed since then, and, and what he sent to me that day had a profound impact on me. Uh, the story comes from a book that was written in 1995 uh, from a, a man by the name of uh, Dr. Moorhead. Dr. Bob Moorhead, he wrote a book called Words Aptly Spoken. In that book, Dr. Moorhead tells the story of a young man uh, from Rwanda who was being forced by his tribe uh, to renounce his faith and belief in Jesus Christ. And this young man refused, unwilling to, to, to make that confession, unwilling to renounce Jesus Christ. As a result, his tribe turned on him and ultimately executed him because he refused to renounce Jesus. The night before he was executed, it is said that this young man left behind these words, and this is what I'd like to close with for you this morning. He wrote the words, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by presence, learn by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission 
is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I have preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns. Give until I drop. Preach until all know and work until he comes. And when he comes to claim his own, he will have no problem recognizing me because my colors will be clear. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation unto everyone who believes. Friends, we've got no reason to be ashamed. We have no excuse for refusing to share the gospel with a world that is in desperate need of hearing it and responding to it. Paul stood unashamed. He was unashamed because this good news came from God himself. Next week, I'll show you how he was unashamed because the gospel is the power of God to save and it is the revelation of God's righteousness. But today, I want you to know that you have no reason to be ashamed of the gospel. You have no reason to to cower down in fear over proclaiming the good news to other people. My challenge to all of us is to do a much better job of proclaiming the good news. Surely, you can think of one person in your life that is in desperate need of responding and receiving the gospel in their hearts and in their lives. Surely, at least one. Will you leverage your time this week? Will you lead your conversations so that you can share the message of God's good news unto him? I pray that we would all do a much better job of effectively communicating God's great love for all people. And may we, like Paul, not be biased in who we share the gospel with. It has the power to save. No matter who, no matter where, no matter what they look like, what they've done, the gospel has the power. And as recipients of the gospel, may we embrace being messengers of that gospel. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. I'll close with the closing benediction. If you're so interested in having a copy of the Fellowship of the Unashamed, I have some copies here. Feel free to to come and grab one at the end of this service. And may you hear these words with a freshness. Go. May God bless you. May God go before you to lead you, behind you to protect you, beneath you to sustain you, and beside you to befriend you. Do not be afraid or ashamed. God the Father, God the Son, 
You know, the Holy Spirit will always be with you. So go. Glorify God. Seek to make his glory known. Amen. See you next time, church.